Hey folks, you're listening to To Know The Land, broadcasting on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph, or maybe you're listening online at tonowtheland.com or through Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The show is about people's connections to land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land, and generally our relationships with the land bases where we live. Today, I get to talk to Hazel Wheeler from the Eastern Loggerhead Shrike Recovery Program. I learned about your program through wildlifepreservation.ca, and folks can go to that website to learn more. But Hazel, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Hazel Wheeler. Uh, I use she, her, they, them pronouns. Uh, and I am the lead biologist with the Eastern Loggerhead Shrike Recovery Program uh, with Wildlife Preservation Canada. So it's a we're, we're a small nonprofit based in Guelph, but we work uh, all across the Canada on um, species that really need, they're kind of, they're, they're really in trouble. So they need some sort of hands-on intervention uh, for recovery. Uh, so that's kind of our specialization. specialization and uh, I do the Shrike Project. Sometimes I ask folks, especially folks from far away, if they can introduce their bioregion as well. And because you're in Guelph, I think, where I am, I want to ask you just to hear it. Do you, do you, can you introduce your bioregion? My bioregion, like the, the BCR. <laughs> so, geez, uh, you know what? Um, I, I don't actually know what the bioregion That's okay. Is That's well. okay. Yeah. I'm a, I often I'm call a bird it like, guy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I yeah. think that's a good point, right? Like, yeah. Um, where where do you work? What's what's the land look like where you work? Yeah. So the, so the area that I I work in, I would say it's uh, it's an alvar ecosystem. Which um, so alvar, it's uh, it's fairly shallow topsoil over limestone bedrock. So you get fairly open areas. Um, not a lot of really large. Uh, plant growth necessarily. Um, you know, if you've been to like, there are some areas up on the, on the Bruce Peninsula that, uh, that are, are alvar as well. So you get kind of grasslands, um, some, some areas of open bare rock. Um, but yeah, kind of open grassy uh, areas that, that are really the kind of habitat that Shrike thrive in. Mm-hmm. If anybody, my favorite Alvar is Misery Bay on Manitoulin Island. If anybody's been there, that's a really, I, I'd think, archetypical Alvar site. You know, what, I have still not actually been to Manitoulin Island. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, it's a there, lovely place. Yeah, there's even, there, there have been shrikes up there. So every mm. year it's like, ah, I'm going to, you know, take some time and actually turn it into, I mean, it, it would be a work trip but also just I'd like to go to Manitoulin Island but um yeah yeah maybe well, if not this summer, but maybe 2022 there. yeah 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 <laughs> and I'm sure that the, like folks would love to hear about shrike populations on the island but mm -hmm. getting back to this can you introduce us to the loggerhead eastern loggerhead shrike what can you tell us a little bit like their habitats what just a bit of their natural history yeah sure so um, loggerhead shrikes, it's, it's a species that I find not many people in Ontario necessarily know about. So uh, they're a songbird. Um, they're, they're about the size of a robin uh, and they are fully predatory. So, you know, they eat mostly 
insects. Um, they can take, you know, snakes, frogs, uh, but they can also eat, you know, larger vertebrate prey, uh, mice, foals, and sometimes even other songbirds. Um, so they're really, they're, they're a pretty uh, impressive birds. They also, uh, they have a, a kind of a, a hawk-like beak. So they've got that hooked beak, like a raptor um, that they use to uh, dispatch their vertebrate prey really quickly. So they actually uh, will kind of bite them on the neck and shake them and break their neck really, really quickly. Um, and uh, yeah, if, if they catch something that's too big for them to eat in one go, I mean, they do have this raptor-like beak, but they do still just have, you know, typical songbird feet. So they're not very strong like you would find in like a hawk or eagle. Um, so to help with food handling, uh, what they'll do is they'll actually impale large prey items uh, on a thorn or barbed wire or anything to hold it still while they can rip off bite-sized pieces to eat. Um, so they're really like, they're a, they're a pretty impressive bird that way. Do they always impale the animal's head up? Uh, ooh, that is a good question. Um, I don't think necessarily. Okay. But because of the way that they kill their prey, um, they uh, they do often end up carrying it by the neck. Okay. Just because that's where they're biting. So I think you do often see them head up. Another thing that they do, like a raptor, shrikes will actually spit up pellets, like like owls. Yes. Like they're, that's they're awesome. Tiny little pellets. <laughs> um. By tiny little, how, how big? Uh, let's say, um, I don't know, maybe a centimeter and a half long. Okay. Maybe by about that a half centimeter. Little. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, cool. Yeah. And I mean, if you're, if you're ever out and you do find something impaled, um, one, of, one of the working group partners down in the States, they've actually started an iNaturalist project called the larder locker Ooh. where you can submit pictures of uh submitted or of of impaled prey um so actually if you're curious to see um that would that would actually be a good place to look to see if if vertebrate prey is always impaled by the head because people have been submitting pictures from all across the states so that's great that's, yeah. great that's great that'll be something i'm certainly looking forward to so yeah, they are. I did mention that they they uh, they live on alvars. They are a grassland species. So I think one of the reasons why a lot of people don't know about them is because their their range is um, pretty restricted here in Ontario. So th at this point, there are only a couple places where you can find them. Um, one of them is the Napanee Limestone Plain, which is of course out near Napanee. The other is the Cardin Alvar, which is uh, it's about half an hour east of Aurelia, um, which if you've never been up there, uh, absolutely beautiful place. Um, yeah, they've been endangered in Ontario and uh, uh, Canada, in fact, since 1991. Mm. So I'm to I want to get into that, but I also was wondering. Like, I feel like I've seen shrikes a few times, but I've often made the assumption of of, of a northern shrike. How do mm. we tell the difference between the northern shrike and the eastern loggerhead shrike? Yeah. So the best um, the best method really, I mean, the northern shrikes and loggerhead shrikes, they do exist kind of on similar habitat, but they're generally separated by the seasons. So uh, loggerhead shrikes you'll find in Ontario uh, during the spring and summer. Um, they do show up pretty early though. So even like as early as late March, you can find them in Ontario. Um, 
and they'll head south during the winter. So they're, they're fully migratory here in Ontario. Uh, whereas northern shrikes, they breed farther north up on um, like the north, northern edge of the boreal forest and they'll come down and be sort of nomadic through Ontario during the winter. So if you see a shrike during the winter, you're almost certainly looking at a northern shrike. If you see one during the summer, uh, it's probably a loggerhead. Um, I mean, there are, you know, during the shoulder season, there is a possibility of overlap. Um, so there are, I mean, they look very, they look very, very similar. And in fact, you know, when, during my first field season, I can remember being out in the spring, um, early spring, you know, there's still snow on the ground and looking at a distant shrike and, you know, for the life of me could not tell the difference. Um, but if you do get a good look at them though, um, loggerhead shrikes tend to be a little bit smaller. Uh, the gray on their back is a little bit darker. Um, their bill is a little bit shorter, but you know, all of these things, it's kind of like, I mean, if, for people who are familiar with birds, it's kind of like telling apart a hairy woodpecker and a downy woodpecker. Like you can kind of know all of these things in theory, but until you're really familiar with the species, you can kind of uh, need to stare at a bird a long time before you can figure it out. Uh, mm -hmm. The best field mark though really is the, the mask. So the loggerhead shrike, uh, all shrikes actually, they have a nice, black mask over their eyes. Um, the northern shrike, the mask tends to be a little bit thinner and you can see more of a white eyebrow and they meet in white over the bill. Whereas a loggerhead shrike has a nice thick black mask, tends to go all the way over the eyes and um, meets with black over the bill. So if you see a bit of a white eyebrow, you're likely looking at a northern shrike, still an exciting bird to see, uh, but not the endangered loggerhead. I had a question about these uh, speciation of the two. Mm -hmm. So with uh, cedar waxwings and bohemian waxwings with like yellow shafted flickers and red shafted flickers with slate colored juncos and Oregon juncos, these species differentiated through because of glaciation. Like when the glaciers mm -hmm. came down, the species split up. They kept breeding, doing their thing for the, you know, perhaps 125 million years that glaciation was occurring. Um, and develop new characteristics and new traits. Is that what happened with the northern shrikes and the eastern loggerhead shrikes? Mm. Um, that's a really good question. Um, so northern shrikes are found in a lot of uh, northern places. So they're not they're not just found in North America, whereas mm. loggerhead shrikes are endemic to North America. So you can only find them here. Um, so whatever speciation happened, um, I think it happened a long time ago. Um, to be honest, I'm not, I don't really, I don't really know when they split off, but, um, yeah. the fact that you can find Northern shrikes, you know, in, in, uh, in parts of Europe as well. Um, so it was a, it was a long time ago that they split, but I mean, so, so there are Northern shrikes and there are loggerhead shrikes and, um, actually, when we're talking about the shrikes that we find here in Ontario, it's actually uh, a different, it's, it's a specific subspecies. So within loggerhead shrikes, which are only found here in North America, there are actually uh, 13 different subspecies. And okay. it's the subspecies found here in Ontario, uh, the, the migrant subspecies that is, you know, formally and commonly known as the eastern loggerhead shrike, that's the endangered one. Um, but I mean, there are loggerhead shrikes all across North America. Um, they all look pretty much the same. 
uh, like really to tell the, the part that the best way is to, is to do some genetic analysis. Um, they're all declining somewhat, uh, but the, the ones that we have here in Ontario, uh, birds in the Northeast of the range, um, they're the ones that are really uh, declining the most. Do you remember the specific epithet for the Eastern loggerhead shrike? Like the, the scientific the, name? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, Lanius Ludovicianus migrans. That's <laughs> the specific one we have here. Yes, yeah. yeah. It's the, the migrant loggerhead shrike. So that's where the migrans comes from. Cool, um, cool. Yeah. Do we, do we know anything about the historical presence in Southern Ontario, uh, maybe before colonization and mass forest removals? Is there any uh, information about that? Yeah, that's, that's always such a tricky, tricky question for, for species at risk. Because, I mean, I've worked, on, I've worked on a number of different species, and that's always kind of the question. It's like, what, what is the baseline that, you know, we're kind of looking at? what where what did they used to be uh and what do we want to get them back to so um i mean the fact that loggerhead shrikes are grassland species you know that kind of points to um maybe there's there was some limitation to the population uh like when when uh ontario the area of ontario was much more forested but um the fact that our birds here in ontario are very closely associated with these alvar ecosystems that would have been uh, fairly open areas uh, for quite a long time uh, going back into history. Um, they were certainly here uh, and they were certainly in larger numbers than we have them now because at this point they're quite precarious. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think anyone really knows. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I find, I mean, that's that's the case for so much, right? Like, we don't know what the pre-colonial history was. And yeah, did, uh, early, early biologists and, and, and settler scientists didn't really listen to folks who might have that knowledge anyway. So we yeah, can't know. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. Um, what's contributed to the recent decline? Yeah, so... I feel like I feel like I need to introduce um, the Shrike effect. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> the Shrike effect is basically that everything can be more difficult, will be more difficult when you're working with Shrikes. Okay. Um, I've worked with the species for about eight years now, and I can I can tell you that this is true. Um, but yeah, so with Shrikes, I mean, unfortunately, there isn't uh, there isn't one thing that we can really point to as far as a cause of their declines. Um, it's really likely a myriad of things. So of course, you know, habitat loss and fragmentation is an issue for um, pretty much all species at risk at this point. Um, so that certainly contributed, but at this point, the number of birds that we have in Ontario uh, are really not even enough to fill the habitat that's available. So um, of course, habitat is still important. You know, we, we still need to kind of protect and restore habitat to make sure that uh, if and when we do recover the birds that there is the habitat there to support them. Um, <clears throat> but I don't think that that's necessarily driving the declines anymore. Um, or I should probably say, I mean, at this point in Ontario, the population that we're dealing with, uh, the breeding population for the last few years has been less than 50 birds. So wow. um, yeah, it's, it's, 
like when I say it's precarious, it's, it's, yeah. it's really precarious. Um, so when you're dealing with a population of that size, then, you know, any loss is really, can, can have a really big effect. So at this point, um, you know, we look at nest predation, uh, any kind of road related mortality. Um, of course, you know, uh, we see more extreme weather happening uh, as climate change uh, kind of starts affecting things in, in much more tangible ways. And we have seen some nest losses after big storms in the summer. Um, loggerhead shrikes are actually also very susceptible to West Nile virus. Um, mm. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things uh, that could be affecting them. I mean, in past, uh, people persecuted them. Um, if, you, if you look back at like some, some of that old timey naturalist writing from, you know, the turn of the 20th century, uh, people did not like that shrikes killed other birds and they mm. would shoot them. Um, so, you know, there's, there's been a lot, a lot uh, combining to bring the birds to where they are now. Um, we have been doing some work, so some, some analyses that have shown that if, if we want to bring back the population, uh, the best place to be focusing our efforts uh, is during migration and on the wintering grounds uh, for birds in Ontario anyways. Um, I mean, you know, for any migratory songbird, migration uh, is, is a very uh, energy intensive time. It's a very dangerous time. So it makes sense that uh, so that, that that might be a pinch point as well. So we're working on figuring out um, where our birds go, where they spend the winter and how they get there. Because uh, as I mentioned, you know, there, there are several subspecies of shrikes. They all look pretty much the same. Ours are migratory, but they likely go down, to, go down into areas where there are resident shrikes. They all kind of mix. And it's really kind of hard to tease apart who is going where, who's staying. This is more, more of the shrike effect. It's all just very kind of difficult figuring out um, who, who, which birds belong where uh, and, and what's affecting them. So yeah, it's, it's, a really, it's a really complex problem and um, it's taking, it takes quite a bit of effort to figure out. Is there any indications of, or, or any, any idea of where the Southern Ontario shrike populations are going to, any idea? Yeah, so um, we have been uh, uh, putting color bands on birds, on wild birds for a very long time. Um, the idea being that, you know, hopefully some intrepid birders elsewhere will, will see our birds and then can report them back to us. Um, we also, I haven't mentioned yet, but part of, part of the loggerhead shrike recovery program, and we do keep track of the wild birds that are really big part is uh, a conservation breeding and release program. So we breed birds in captivity and then we release the juveniles into the wild to bolster the wild population. Um, so we also put color bands on all of our uh, captive bred birds as well. So we can you know, make sure that they're, they're thriving, what their return rates are like. Um, uh, but with the captive bred birds, we also have started putting radio tags on some of them um, so that we can actually track them during migration and hopefully wherever they end up on the wintering grounds. Um, so these, these radio tags, they're, they're actually tracked on uh, what's called the MODIS network, which is a project that started uh, out of uh, Birds Canada and Acadia University. Um, it's actually a really, really kind of awesome project that is designed to 
make large scale animal tracking, large scale telemetry projects um, much more accessible. Because uh, these sorts of projects uh, were really very, very expensive. Like if you wanted to um, build your own kind of antenna tower so that you could uh, have a point where you could track birds, you know, that could be, gosh, I did some tracking in my master's and the, the tower itself cost about $20,000, like okay. ridiculously expensive. Um, but with MODIS, they kind of, they made more of a, a DIY. So you could like build your own receiver. They brought the price down to about $5,000, um, which, you know, still expensive, but for a larger project or for a larger organization, um, much more in reach. Uh, but yeah, the idea though, is that any researcher could put up a tower and then with that, any animals that you tag or even any animals that you tag uh, can be picked up on any tower that any researcher puts up. Mm. So we've, we've built this network of telemetry towers all across North America. And I mean, at this point, it's even expanded into uh, Europe. Um, so, I mean, with that, we have started tracking our shrikes. Um, there is, you know, the limitation that you'll only, of course, get detections where a tower is put up. <laughs> so a bird needs to pass by a tower. Uh, but from that, we have been getting uh, data on migratory routes through Ontario, which we didn't know about, um, which, uh, I mean, not, no surprise, they kind of go however they can around the Great Lakes. Uh, but in the past few years, we have gotten a couple detections down in the States. Uh, so it seems like uh, Pennsylvania is a, is a migratory route for our birds. They don't, they don't stop there, um, but they're definitely going through Pennsylvania we also have some connections to uh, to the Virginias as possible wintering grounds. So I mean, it's it's we're gathering data piece by piece here, uh, and the the picture's kind of coming together. But we don't have, you know, the the full answer quite yet. But it's something that we continue to work on. I remember being on the bus from. Oh, I can't remember where I was coming from, but I was going through Pennsylvania, and I just remember grass. So maybe that's the thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure not all of Pennsylvania is like that, but the bus route took me by there. You briefly touched on the, the Eastern Loggerhead Shrike Recovery Program, the work that you do. Mm -hmm. But can you tell us that, about that in more detail? Wildlife Preservation Canada has been coordinating this program since 2003. Um, <clears throat> so it's been going for quite a while. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, shrikes were designated uh, endangered in 1991. Um, at that point, the government of Canada, so Environment Canada really started paying attention to the birds and, and tracking the, the wild population. Um, <clears throat> it was in 1997 that uh, the population reached what they called a critically low level of 18 pairs in the wild. Um, and that was the impetus for the formation of the, the captive population. Uh, so at that point, they brought about 50 wild nestlings into captivity and that was meant to act as sort of an assurance population, um, to have a safety net in case the, the wild population completely crashed. Um, so in, in the early days, it was managed by Environment Canada. We took over in 2003 um, and have been doing it ever since. So yeah, the, the, the big parts are of course, you know, keeping track of the wild birds because uh, we need to know what the situ situation is like on the ground. Um, the conservation breeding and release program uh, and that's, I mean, at this point, uh, since 2003, we've now released 
I mean, over, uh, I think we've surpassed 1300 juveniles that we've released into the wild. Um, so this is, this is a program that, uh, I mean, our entire recovery program, you know, we're, we're, we're a fairly lean <laughs> nonprofit. I mean, well, most nonprofits are fairly lean, but, uh, you know, we really, we really rely on uh, a lot of partnerships and we've built some really great partnerships over the years. Um, so with the captive, um, captive breeding and release program specifically, uh, our birds are bred at partner uh, facilities. So in Ontario, that's the Toronto Zoo and African Lion Safari. Um, and then we have a few breeding partners in the States as well. So there's uh, Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute in Virginia. Um, the Nashville Zoo uh, down in Tennessee, uh, and we have the National Aviary in Pittsburgh. Um, they're going to be coming online this year, uh, and we're actually we're looking at expanding into uh, into Quebec as well. The Granby Zoo uh, is is uh, hoping to come on as a breeding partner as well. So I mean, this is you know the, the conservation breeding side of it. This is something that we couldn't do without our breeding partners because they they hold the birds year round. Um, you know, we, we coordinate the breeding, but they're the ones who are actually taking care of the birds. Um, and then uh, basically once the young reach independence, that's when they come under the care, the direct care of WPC. We take them out to our field sites and uh, our, our field sites. So we have one in uh, Carden and one in Napanee uh, because these are the two areas where you can still reliably find the birds breeding. And the idea is that we want to be releasing these birds into areas where wild populations still exist because we figure that will give them uh, the best chance of survival. Um, also, there is potential for them to mix with wild fledglings and perhaps there could be some information transfer there. Um, that is a big was, part of what we do. Sorry, were you gonna ask a question? I just, I just have so many questions. Well, well, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, <clears throat> firstly, when, when, when they're breeding the birds, how do the birds not become human imprinted? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. Um, we really do our very best to make sure the birds stay wild because you, a captive animal is not going to fare well in the wild. Um, the birds themselves are, are incredibly plucky. Um, they, are, they are the original angry bird. Um, but uh, none of the birds that are part of the breeding program, I mean, despite the fact that they are at the Toronto Zoo and African Lion Safari, that, you know, are areas that, you know, under quote unquote normal circumstances would have a lot of people coming through. The birds aren't uh, exposed to the public at all. So they're, they're off exhibit. Um, and it's really just kind of about limiting any kind of contact. I mean, of course, people do need to go in on a daily basis to feed the birds, um, but, you know, the birds have enough space that they can, uh, they can kind of escape to a different area if they're in closure when there are people in there. Um, yeah, so it's really just limiting, limiting the, the contact that we have with them. Uh, also trying to provide, you know, as, as uh, I don't want to say natural, <laughs> it's not really a, a natural environment being held in captivity, but, you know, we, we provide them with enrichment so that they can um, basically express all of the natural behaviors. Um, so there's, you know, high perches, so they can have lookouts and spots to sing. There's, um, you know, thorns and barbed wire and things put up in their cages so that they can do all that, uh, the, the impaling. Um, 
yeah, I mean, we, we do the best that we can to give them all that they need. And then we just interfere as, as little as possible, really. How do the shrikes do when they're all together in the enclosures? Are they, are they territorial? Are they, I, I wonder, and I, I have no idea of how big the enclosures are. On the Wildlife Preservation Canada website, there's a great video that you're in. You explain some of the project. And <laughs> one of the pens that you see in the video is an enclosure about the size, maybe one or two sheds stuck together backyard mm -hmm. sheds and I was just wondering is that is that what the enclosures look like at the breeding where, where they're doing the breeding and are these animals territorial or infighting when they're in the pens what does that look like yeah so um they are the the adults are very territorial so um during the off season uh so during the winter you actually need to hold each bird individually uh, otherwise they will attack each other. Um, mm. uh, during the breeding season, of course, you know, the hormones start flowing. And so we can put, we can put the breeding adults together and um, they will coexist. Uh, but yeah, the, the enclosures that we have at the field site. So like you said, these, these two sheds, so they are um, 10 feet tall, uh, eight feet wide, and then 12 to 16 feet long. So they're, they're quite large. Um, and these were our original breeding enclosures. Um, and some of the, the breeding facilities do have these. So basically you would put a pair into one of these enclosures uh, and then just give them the food and everything that they need uh, and let them raise their young. Uh, there are some other different styles, but I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, there's always an effort to make sure that they have enough space to fly. Um, around and, you know, uh, as I said, the, express all those natural behaviors, um, make sure that they stay fit. Uh, during the, the, the end of the summer, so those cages that were breeding cages, um, since all of our breeding now happens at the partner facilities, we just use those cages now to release the young. Uh, mm. Thankfully, the, the young aren't territorial at first. So when we are doing the releases, we can group all of the young together uh, even from different nests. And this actually mimics what, uh, what happens sometimes in the wild. So once the young reach independence in the wild, they'll start kind of ranging around and they might actually kind of clump up with other, uh, other young from different nests. Um, so we can put up to 10 or 12 young in one of those cages uh, and then we release them. But yeah, it's kind of once you get into like the late summer, early winter, that's when you start seeing that territorial uh, behavior come back. And so you need to make sure that you separate them all. Mm, um, yeah. yeah. How, how does the population monitoring work for loggerhead shrikes? Like, are you, you, you release them and then how do you know what's like, how, how do you count? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is where the color banding really comes in. Um, so every juvenile that we release has a unique color, uh, a unique combination of bands. So every bird, um, every bird that we release will get a, a government issued uh, metal band. Um, and these bands, uh, if anybody's been to like a banding lab, this is what you would see at a banding lab. So it's just a small metal band that has a unique number on it. Um, but of course, 
that number is, is uh, no use unless you've actually retrapped the bird. So we put a combination of color bands on so that we're able to um, distinguish individuals in the field from a distance using you know, binoculars or spotting scope. Um, it can still be tricky to you know, get your eyes on the leg of a bird, uh, but for the most part, that will help us to uh, figure out how many birds are sticking around uh, after we release them, how long they're sticking around. Also, when we do release them, we give them some, some supplemental food. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, when we release them, it's called a soft release technique. So uh, you know, they're, they're given some time at the field site to acclimate to their surroundings. Uh, while they're in their enclosures, they get exposure, uh, controlled exposure to predators in the area. Um, we also give them uh, live mouse training. So we'll actually, we, we feed them at the field sites uh, a, a mix of invertebrates, so crickets, mealworms, um, super mealworms, but we also do feed them live and dead mice to make sure that they can kill and eat live vertebrate prey. Um, but yeah, so once I was released, I got kind of lost in my, in my answer there. Uh, between the, the, uh, the color bands, I mean, we can track them at, at the field site as they move around. And then hopefully, you know, fingers crossed when they come back next year, we will be able to identify them as well. Um, yeah, and since, I mean, it's, since the populations are so limited at this point, we do have a fairly good handle on where the birds will show up. So, I mean, it's, you know, it, we live in a big province and of course uh, birds, can be found elsewhere as well. Sometimes they've been showing up in Quebec, but uh, I'm, I'm quite confident that uh, we get the, the vast majority of birds that are in Ontario. I mean, even if our field staff don't see them, one of the good things, uh, <laughs> if you can say good things about working with endangered species, um, is the birding community. I mean, if there is a shrike out there, uh, the likelihood is that some enthusiastic birder is going to see it and then report it. Um, yeah, so that others can also enjoy it. Yeah, are, are the are the shrikes? Um, what is it called? Is it phylopatric, where they they come back they come back to the same sites every year? Yeah, yeah. So uh, so that's also an interesting thing. Um, shrikes do tend to show up on the same territories uh, year after year. However, it's not always the same birds. <laughs> so this is one of the things that you know, we got from color banding. Um, so we would go out and trap a wild or pair of wild birds on a territory. And then the next year, there will be some birds on that territory, uh, not necessarily those same birds, sometimes even using the same tree. So mm. it's, it's, there's definitely something about these habitats. Um, whether you know maybe the the presence of a nest uh just as kind of an indicator to a shrike that this is a good spot to be um so yeah we do we do have sometimes the birds coming back to the same territories but it's not always the same birds sometimes there's a bit of a shuffle so it's a really it's an in interesting aspect of their of their um behavior are they nesting in in like hawthorns and stuff like that which have trees which have the thorns they would impale their prey on? Yeah, exactly. So um, 
hawthorns or any kind of you know, thorny, thorny uh, tree or shrub. Um, I mean, in Cardin, uh, hawthorn is their nest tree of choice. Um, out in the Napanee region, though, hawthorns have, have pretty much been wiped out by uh, a disease called red cedar rust. It really affected yeah. the hawthorns and, and, and they're, they're almost gone. So out in Napanee, um, they'll actually nest in uh, red cedar. Okay. Uh, or uh, white cedar, rather. Um, so, you know, just large coniferous trees. They're not necessarily thorny, but they are very dense. So they do offer some protection against predators that way. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, how do you measure success in your project? Of course, mm -hmm. they've not been delisted from, mm -hmm. from the endangered species lists they're still on it but how do you how do you look at the project and say okay we're, we're doing we're doing well here yeah um that is always a question because uh, i mean you know some people might hear that we've been working on these birds since 2003 and be like well what are you doing <laughs> um but uh i think in any species at risk work, you really, you need to, you need to count the victories where you can. So, mm -hmm. um, no, we have not recovered the population yet. Um, but through, uh, through the conservation breeding and release program, we have definitely, uh, had a stabilizing effect on the wild population. Um, so I don't know that I can necessarily say without qualification, I mean, I'm a scientist, I don't know that I can necessarily say that they would be extirpated uh, from Ontario if we weren't doing this, but they'd be pretty darn close. Um, mm. Certainly they'd be in a much worse off position than they are now uh, because we do see um, in recent years up to a third of the birds that we're finding in Ontario are from the conservation breeding program. So they're having okay. a really important impact uh, in keeping the birds on the landscape. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, another is just, you know, the, the work that we've been doing. Uh, I mean, we started, when the program started, it was very much Ontario focused. Um, but of course, you know, we're working with a migratory species. So trying to work in isolation on, on such a species um, without looking to their, their entire range is kind of foolish. So uh, in recent years, we've, we're part of a, a North American loggerhead trike working group. And we've been working with researchers all across North America to, to develop kind of a coordinated uh, research and conservation plan to bring back the species across their range. Um, so, I mean, it's, 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 I think work in species at risk conservation is usually fairly slow going, but you can mm -hmm. always see there is progress happening. Um, yeah, and I mean, even just, you know, the growth of the, the conservation breeding program. So I'd mentioned there are a couple new facilities that are going to be coming on as breeding partners in the next couple of years. <clears throat> so what that means is we're going to be able to increase our breeding capacity, which means we're going to be able to increase our release capacity, which, you know, one of the questions is like, um, before, you know, uh, before this uh, panorama that we're now in, <laughs> um, 
they're, they're, we were releasing over like a hundred captive bred birds a year. Um, but what if we, you know, bump it up to 150 or 200 birds a year? Like, will that help us to get over a hump where we can see the population really start to mm -hmm. uh, rebound? And, yeah, um, yeah. So it's, that it's, yeah, you need to have a, you need to have a long game. Uh, for sure. Mindset for these kinds of projects. Yeah, I feel like um, I, I was thinking about it today. I was thinking about literally the movement of rocks. And it's like, you can't just look at it in a slow or, or a human scale when, when you think of like, like these things. You have to look at it way beyond our, our limited perspective of maybe 80 to 120, maybe even 200 year perspective on a species because these things take a lot of time. And what if, what if y'all raise that breeding capacity to 200 birds that you're mm -hmm. releasing? Maybe that is that critical mass that things can shift and turn. But I, I was wondering, it's like, what, what's the rate, if you know, of, of these released birds hooking up with the wild birds to breed? Is that a, is that a thing that you've been seeing? Yeah. Um... Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't know the rates of that offhand, but we do see, so our birds are coming back um, at, at uh, they have a return rate that is um, at least what we're seeing in the wild population. It's, it's sometimes higher. So, I mean, it doesn't sound very impressive, but it's, it's at least 5% of the birds that we're releasing are coming back. Um, but, you know, for a migratory songbird, uh, that's that that first year is quite a pinch point, um, so that's actually actually reasonable for for our birds. Um, but you know we do see our birds coming back at higher rates. So sometimes we get like 10, 12, 15 percent of the birds we're releasing coming back to breed in the wild. Um, because of the color bands, we can tell if they're pairing with a wild bird or if they're pairing with another captive bird. Um, so yeah, I mean, those numbers exist on my computer, but it, it is happening and they, they are producing wild fledglings. Um, I think uh, about 40% of the fledglings in the last few years um, that we've been seeing uh, each year uh, have been coming from pairings that include one of our uh, conservation bred birds. That's pretty awesome. That's yeah, pretty it's, a, it's a big impact. Yeah. yeah. So, mm -hmm. Speaking of impacts, how has how is, uh, COVID-19 impacted the program? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, so winter time for, for most field biologists is report writing time. And I feel like I just have to put a big asterisk on everything this year, just you know, with the notes, this, this was just a weird year, okay? <laughs> um, so every year we do have uh, field staff out looking for the birds. We did have that again this year, um, but our, our staffing was limited. So, you know, we didn't have as many, we didn't have as many people out doing surveys or spending as much time. Um, the big hit though was really uh, the, the conservation breeding program. So, um, 
I mean, in, in, in normal times, you know, it's great that we have expanded our, our conservation breeding down into the States, but uh, we weren't really sure. So at the end of every summer, um, all of those fledglings that are produced in, in uh, facilities in the States, they'd be transferred up to Ontario to be released here. But because of the border closures, we didn't really, we weren't sure if that was happening. So we really had to limit the breeding that was happening um, to basically just facilities were breeding as many birds as they could hold, but we weren't gonna be doing as many transfers. Um, so really the only, the only releases that we did uh, this year were birds that were bred in Ontario. I mean, also, you know, the facilities, these, these are largely facilities that rely on uh, income from, from the public. Like they rely on public coming to their facilities uh, and spending their money to kind of operate. So they were also really feeling the pinch as far as staffing and resources. And um, so, yeah, it was a, it's, it's, it was a tough year uh, as it was for everybody. Um, we did what we could. Uh, we, will, we will keep doing what we can. Um, yeah, I mean, in some respects, uh, working for a nonprofit through, through this ha has been kind of, um, it, it's actually not, not been a bad thing because we aren't, we aren't reliant on uh, customers <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and yeah. that kind of income. So I think uh, in some ways there's been a fair bit of stability, uh, but we've certainly had to adapt and, and pretty, pretty intensely limit what we did um, last year. And I don't know, well, it's, it's, this is, certainly going to be another uh, atypical summer um, but at least you know we've been through one so hopefully we'll do uh, we can manage a bit better so I recognize that what you just said about how, how these some of these organizations or these even like zoos and African lions fire those things rely heavily on on public consumer funding to, mm -hmm. to get by how, how does this project get funded? I know that there's less and less money for conservation. Mm -hmm. So how does, how do y'all stay afloat and keep doing what you're doing? Yeah. So I mean, we do, uh, we do rely um, in large part still on government grants. So there's uh, the, the provincial species at risk stewardship uh, fund. Um, which actually we just, uh, we just received a three year uh, agreement, which is, uh, oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, anybody in a nonprofit, that's like a huge, a huge relief. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, other than that, I mean, you know, we we apply to whatever grants we find. There's, you know, private foundations, uh, donations from the public. Um, certainly, certainly uh, help us out quite a lot, uh, and we just kind of. Uh, it's, it's, it's the hustle, you know, you, uh, you find the money where you can to do the work that you need to do. Yeah. On the website, wildlifepreservation.ca, uh, I just looked at it and right at the top, there is a donate button. So if folks do <laughs> want to support the project, they can do it that way. Again, that's wildlifepreservation.ca. Yeah. And there's gonna, I'm going to put a link on the website to knowtheland.com on the podcast if people are listening to it that way you can find a way to donate there 
Hazel, I don't want to yeah. go over time, but mm-hmm. I was wondering, is there anything else that you wanted to, to say before we close it out? Oh, man. Um, I feel like this has been a meandering. We've covered a lot of grounds. Um, a lot. I, I so appreciate <laughs> it. I feel like I get a little bit ADD. So I'm like, oh, but what about this? And what about this? So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, yeah, I guess just, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure, I'm sure we covered a lot, but I'm sure there's also a lot that we didn't cover. So if anybody is interested in learning more, I mean, you can find us on the website, on, on the socials. Um, uh, my email is also available on the website. So if anybody, you know, if anybody wants to chat about shrikes, um, we do, uh, we do have a community science program um, that, uh I mean, it's, it's, you do need to go to areas where shrikes are or could be found. So um, it's, it's really, you need to have um, a car to do it. It's not, it's unavailable by public transportation, but um, if anybody's interested in learning about uh, how you might be able to help out by doing some early spring surveys for shrikes, uh, then, you know, reach out to me and I can tell you more about that. Um, Yeah. Anybody ever sees a shrike, just let me know because I, I really want to know. <laughs> I will, I will for sure. Yeah. And then I'll probably I always try and take a photo of the things I see too. So if I actually get one, I'll, I'll probably need your help to ID it. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. Thank you very much, Hazel, for for sharing your experience with the shrikes and your insights and, and talking about the work that you do. I feel like your job is the dream job of every every young want to be biologist scientists is to help save and preserve these these endangered species these species at risk so thank you so much for doing that work you're like a shrike superhero you're, <laughs> it's this you're you're that great person that's like acting as facilitator be like not all people are bad you know we're all working <laughs> hard to do something good and just i appreciate i appreciate the work that you do and everybody at wildlife preservation because it's when you think about like 50 breeding pairs that's that's so scary and yeah and y'all are doing the work to to hold back the tide and i really appreciate that yeah yeah thanks no this was a this is i mean you know we just we all do what we can and uh yeah, yeah no it's a, a pleasure a pleasure talking to you about all this clearly i i could go on for a long time about right <laughs> Yeah. I tell you what, in two years, I'll call you back. We can have another okay. conversation, see how things are going. Awesome. Um, Love it. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to To Know the Land on 93.3 FM, broadcasting from the University of Guelph, or you're listening to it at tonowtheland.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. We've been talking to Hazel Wheeler, uh, lead biologist uh, with Wildlife Preservation's Eastern Loggerhead Shrike Recovery Program. If you want to find out more about the show, check out tonowtheland.com or you can email me at tonowtheland at gmail.com. And if you want to find out more information about the work that Hazel and Wildlife Preservation are doing, check out the website. It'll be on there.